The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for our topic on hiring H-1B workers during the pandemic, issues pertaining to status, denials, and layoffs. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, and I'm so honored and delighted to welcome each of you and joining me on today's panel for our discussion are Korzad Mehta, a senior attorney at the Murthy Law Firm who's got over 15 years of immigration law experience, maybe running into 20 now, I lose track. Uh, and uh, Kevin Andrews, who's been with us, again, at least a decade, if not longer, two brilliant colleagues who I'm very proud to refer to as my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, uh, Korzad focusing on immigrant visa issues, the green card aspects of it, and transition issues with H1s with a focus on medical doctors and other cases. And Kevin, whose focus is non-immigrant visa issues, the H1B department, clearly superstars in the Murthy Law Firm team. Um, I think we can all agree that 2020 has been a really strange year uh, in terms not just of COVID-19, but the impact and the ripple effects of COVID-19 with the economy, the political changes, and the social disruptions, the marches, all of that. Uh, obviously, since March, uh, because of COVID-19, there's been mass layoffs across the country, primarily in other sectors, less so in the tech, high-tech sectors, which still are experiencing one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. But because the tech sector relies on other sectors of the economy to send people, the ripple effects of major companies having layoffs, state governments mandating sometimes shelter orders to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 since March and April, especially in March, April, and May of this year. And then we thought things were turning around the corner. And now again in October, November, uh, and December, it looks like the spikes in certain states are going up and across the country. And of course, we expect even more from the ripple effect of all of the travel that people have done over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. So, um, you know, clearly uh, there's going to continue to be ramifications uh, on you and each of you, your business, your employees, and your clients, your end clients as well. Um, and while we would say that the macroeconomic landscape has stabilized since March. There continue to be laid off workers who are seeking opportunities, and many of you as employers are continuing to want to rebuild your teams, um, especially as you see that with the holidays in the rearview mirror in a month from now in early January, you'll be hopefully uh, and with the vaccine around the corner, we'll ho all hopefully be looking at how we can continue to come back to the vibrant economy that was existing pre-pandemic. 
Uh, again, today, as I said, we're going to focus on primarily status issues within the United States and all of those issues with the United States. Uh, and I know last month in November, the Murthy Law Firm legal team, we discussed the H-1B-related issues, including the regulations, the Department of Labor increased wage from October 8th of 2020. Uh, we'll give you a quick update on that before we get started, as well as the new specialty occupation, uh, how the Trump administration interim final regulations plan to change that and make that effective from December 7th of 2020. And as I said, for those of your employees who are stuck abroad because of the presidential proclamation and haven't been able to return back to the United States because very few international flights, and again, I think the Indian borders have again closed till December 31st, 2020. So because of all of this, um, hopefully your employees are still allowed to continue to work from India because then you're not dealing with U.S. immigration law in those kinds of situations. But there's a lot of gray areas, lots of wrinkles, and obviously if you have nuances and case-specific details, we would suggest and recommend scheduling a consultation with one of our incredibly knowledge and brilliant attorneys at the Multi Law Firm. So before we get to the actual substance of, you know, when does the 60-day grace period start, how does it work, et cetera, Korzad, I think it would be helpful for our listeners for you to just share a quick update on uh, what we've seen with respect to the December 7th specialty occupation interim final regulation and where things stand with respect to the lawsuits. Anything that's, that you can share? Sure, Sheila. Um, I wish I had more to share. Uh, basically, what's mm-hmm. uh, happening right now is both the uh, USCIS inter- interim final regulation, which, as you said, uh, is going to affect um, in December, so uh, next week sometime, not in the first week of December, but the beginning of the second week of December, around the 7th of December. Um, and the uh, DOL, Department of Labor interim final regulation, which already went into effect on October 8th uh, of this year, uh, are currently under litigation. Uh, there are a number of cases that are percolating through the federal court system. And uh, what is anticipated is, is that hopefully sometime soon, uh, preferably before the USCIS, uh, the, the DHS rule becomes effective on December 7th, that the federal court may see fit to um, consider the arguments that the uh, folks bringing the suit are um, as meritorious and enjoin these rules so they don't go into effect or that their applicability can be stopped. Um, signs appear to be positive, uh, at least in the DOL case, uh, according to well-known immigration commentators. But at this point in time, you know, things are still pending, for lack of a better word, in front of the federal courts. Thank you, Korzad. Great. Okay, so the next the major topic we wanted to touch upon, several multiple questions and answers that we'll go over, is if the employee is terminated because of all of these layoffs and terminations, um, we've heard of the most employers and employees have heard of the 60 days. What does it mean when it says that the employment, the new H-1B has to be filed within the 60 days of termination? Sure, Sheila. So in 2017, in the waning days of the Obama administration, um, a set of regulations were promulgated, which are collectively known as the high-tech regulations. Um, Part and parcel of the high-tech regulations was the 
introduction of what has colloquially become known as the 60-day grace period or 60-day rule uh, as it as it relates to H-1B non-immigrants who've seized their employment either because they've resigned or in the case that we're talking about here, they've been terminated from their employment. Um, now, it's important to remember a couple of things about the 60-day grace period. Number one, it's not always 60 days. Um, it is the regulations say that individuals whose employment has ceased are given a 60-day grace period or the amount of time that's left on their H-1B petition, uh, whichever is shorter. So for those individuals who are terminated within 60 days of their petition expiring, um, they may have less than 60 days within which they have to figure out what their next steps are with respect to their immigration status here in the United States. The second thing to kind of keep in mind, which generally speaking does not pop up, is that the 60-day grace period is not necessarily automatic. Um, there is a discretionary component to it, and an officer can, based on information, derogatory information that they may see in the record, um, decide not to extend that grace to the foreign national. But, you know, we in the firm, and I think Kevin would probably agree with me, have not seen that be an issue uh, within our world of practice, uh, definitely, and even I haven't heard so much about it uh, externally as well. Um, but, you know, for purposes of our discussion here, let's just say that, you know, there's a, there's a, that the foreign national is going to be afforded the full 60 days. So if the H-1B worker's last I-94 card is still facially valid at least 60 days from the employment end date or the cessation date I've been talking about, a change of employer or transfer petition can be filed and that foreign national can begin working for that new employer upon receipt of the petition by the USCIS. Now, um, in years past, employers have been tempted to uh, commence employment under that um, part of the law. It's, uh, it's uh, INA 214N. Uh, upon delivery confirmation from Federal Express or some other kind of um, trackable courier, but generally, and especially since, you know, we, we should look at everything with an eye to enforcement, the um, employer handbook for I-9 compliance appears to require that in such a context, the employer who's filling out the I-9 actually have the receipt notice in hand. So you've got to wait until you have the receipt notice. If you've been able to file premium processing, that's great. You might have a receipt notice via email, and that might be enough to complete the I-9. But, you know, keep in mind other timing considerations as well. Um, you know, you have a 60-day grace period, but a, a, an H-1B itself can take some time to prepare, a minimum of 7 to 10 days is required simply for um, LCA certification, and that's seven to 10 business days. Um, so, you know, honestly, to be realistic uh, about it, you really want to initiate the um, H-1B uh, for change of employer no later than day 40, at latest day 45, but uh, you really don't want much more than a month to have gone by before you've um, started the uh, before you've kind of started your process, if, if what you're going to do is change employer and start working with another employer in H-1B status. As I said before, that 60-day grace period or, you know, the grace period in general, if it's less than 60 days before your petition expiring, does start on the first day of unemployment. So that means the day that you ceased working. And that's even if 
you're continuing to receive some sort of severance payment or you know, other type of uh, monies that are owed to you through that previous employment, you ca- start counting the 60 days from when you stop working. Thank you, Korzad. So uh, as you can see, it's, it's a lot of planning and preparation for you all as employers to clearly understand how to get started and where to get going if you are hiring one of these uh, valuable uh, resources for your business to continue to grow and expand, especially because the unemployment rate is so low, way like less than 50% off uh, low unemployment overall, even with COVID-19 having increased unemployment overall generally in the country with respect to the technology and the tech sector and the IT sector, it is, it is like 3 4% which as most economists agree, anything less than 7, 7.5% is actually considered close to 0% unemployment. So very fascinating, again, discussion. I'm not an economics uh, major, but it's always interesting to hear how economists and finance and business people determine certain parameters and flow charts, et cetera. So the next big question that I'm going to invite Kevin to discuss is what if, the employer decides to prepare the H-1 petition, but now for whatever reasons, because they couldn't get around to it, the employee came to them late, the LCA took time, whatever, but the petition itself is now filed just after the 60-day grace period has expired or terminated or whatever. So what are the different analysis to consider, Kevin? Uh, sure. Thanks, Sheila. Um, <clears throat> so the... Uh, it is an option to file a change of status or an extension of status, not just within the 60-day grace period that came about with that regulation Corzad mentioned, but uh, that regulation is actually um, based on a more foundational regulation uh, that allows USCIS to waive the lateness of an H-1B extent uh, of an extension petition, like for H-1B's transfer or a change of status if the failure to file the petition on, on time was due to extraordinary circumstances beyond the petitioner's control. Now, um, you guys have been practicing longer than me, but you know, in the decade plus that I've been practicing, extraordinary circumstances had tended to be very uh, localized, y- unique to an individual situation, case by case. But ever since March of 2020, uh, uh, humanity has come together in an ex- a collective extraordinary circumstance. And in April, of 2020, USCIS issued a news release saying um, basically what I'm saying right now, hey, we have this regulation that allows USCIS, allows us to waive the lateness of a petition filing due to extraordinary circumstances beyond the petitioner's control. We're giving you guys a heads up that if the status violation was directly related to COVID-19, USCIS is going to exercise discretion in a a kind of systemic way and, and, and still grant those petition requests. And, you know, if, if a person was laid off since March, you know, basically if there was some status issue that arose that, that you can uh, attribute to like uh, systemic layoffs, it wasn't due to individual performance or the person wasn't maintaining status and, you know, they fell out of status uh, or some, some event that happened pre-pandemic, because we are seeing USCIS draw distinction between those kinds of uh, fact patterns and the ones involving a situation, you know, since COVID-19. So if you were laid off, it's, like, it's almost like the presumption is that it was due to COVID-19 unless there's something in the record to indicate that it was something more, more personal. So, you know, I think a lot of people have been, nobody has been wanting to travel in 2020, even if there was an, uh, a possibility to do so, just the, the overall risk. So what a lot of people I think have been doing is saying, well, 
I'm going to file the change of status to B visa within the 60-day grace period. That, that's going to keep me safe. And the concern about that is, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, you know, just being able to be in the United States is not enough. You've got to be able to work in the United States as well. If you file the B transfer um, while you're waiting for that opportunity to come along and then the cool oppor- job opportunity comes along after the B change of status has been filed, you know, within the 60-day grace period, you, you can't just start working upon the filing of that new petition. You have to wait for USCIS to process a change of status petition, or which is going to take the better part of a year right now, like eight to ten months probably, or just ask USCIS to waive that and give you the, the status anyway, which is the original um, advice that I think I'm kind of giving here for these over 60-day situations. So <clears throat> to Corzat's point, you know, you're, you're, you're shaking hands with the job, with the employer on, you know, day 55, day 59. You, you, you bump into, you know, Elon Musk or somebody on day 72. Okay, well, and you just haven't filed anything. You have a facially valid I-94 card maybe, so you're not accruing unlawful presence, but you're not in status. Those cases, I think that you could still file those, and we're seeing them um, anecdotally. I could say we're seeing success where the fact pattern has something directly related to COVID-19. And one last point about this is that, um, uh, you know, I I remind myself that, uh, you know, us people like to think that they're, they're logical beings that can occasionally have emotions, but the reality is, we're emotional beings that can occasionally engage in logic and ration and, and reason. So it's important. It's important to put huma- a humanitarian sections uh, uh, section. I'm sorry, humanitarian circumstances section in the filing. Uh, you know, if there are affected family members, maybe you're single, you don't have a family, but if you had to go back home, you you have elderly family members that you could be putting at risk between all the quarantine protocols getting from this hemisphere to that one, and putting pictures of color pictures, not just as exhibits, but embedded into the, the, the RFE response or the memo, whatever it is, of the human beings that are going to be affected. I think it's important to pluck at those heartstrings just as much as we try to make for the legal strategy. I think that's been a major component to the success we've seen in those cases. Thank you, Kevin. I guess it comes back to the importance that the best lawyers or the best of any profession in the world are not just people who are brilliant intellectually, uh, but also emotionally intelligent. I know there's a lot of research done on IQ versus EQ, the emotional quotient, and that always EQ plus CQ, curiosity quotient, will always supersede and exceed IQ in terms of, uh, you know, succeeding in business, succeeding in life, succeeding in your work, and as you've heard from Kevin Andrews as well, succeeding in filing good, strong responses, petitions, RFE responses, notice of intentions to revoke responses with the USCIS. So we don't just at the Murthy Law Firm focus on the legal, the technical, answering all of the technical stuff, but also, uh, as uh, Kevin pointed out, include the color photos, include family, include the make the human humanitarian uh, uh, angle to pull at their heartstrings. Ex- excellent point. Thank you. Thank you for that, Kevin. So the next question that we always get asked is, you know, I really need peace of mind. I want my answer. I want to file this ASAP. I want to pay extra for the premium processing. Um, so why don't I just go ahead and get that approval early so I can sleep well instead of waiting four months, six months, eight months to get an answer. And at least I know I've been saying that, that this, and I'm sounds like Kevin and, uh, 
uh, Korzad are saying the same thing, and I think most lawyers will agree that in today's day and age, especially for the last three or four years, we've had a very anti-immigrant and anti-immigration kind of um, administration going after employers and employees in a big way. So you really need to think before sp- spending that extra money to process a case un- under the premium processing program. So already we saw that the premium processing fee has nearly doubled to 2500 recently. So in my opinion, and it sounds like we all are in agreement, that it's generally not a good idea to file uh, with the premium processing program for someone who is not already accruing unlawful presence, you know, while the consular processing operations are impacted by the pandemic and COVID-19. So if it's really not required, you're really better off just filing it under regular. My philosophy in this is why pay extra money to get a denial faster, right? It makes no sense. And you all as employers certainly don't want to be spending more and more and more money to get a denial faster. So now the employee cannot even work for the company to take advantage of uh, 214i. And then we'll discuss that. So in India, of course, the Dropbox is still available, but anyone who requires an H-1B visa interview has been delayed because of COVID-19 closures across the globe. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, most unless you can show that you're subject or eligible for some kind of an emergency request uh, or an exception, an exemption under the national interest exemption from the presidential proclamations, you're going to have a big problem in getting a visa interview before December 31st of 2020 anyway. And even after that, there are COVID-19 closures with U.S. consulates across the globe. Um, if there is a bona fide request under 8 CFR 214.1 C4, the H-1B worker, as we know, is considered to be in a period of authorized stay and can continue to keep working, as we also know, for approximately 240 days or eight months, close to eight months, based on filing the extension petition. And if there is an amendment or a change of employer, then actually there's no 240-day limit. The person can keep working with the employer based on filing the new petition. So why should we file premium, pay extra, and then get an RFE or a denial within two months, three months, four months, and now you have to stop working, pack up, and leave or lose the the valuable employee? Um, so as we and said, if the petition, uh, sorry, did you want to add sorry, something? She, Sheila, yeah, I'm sorry to interject. I just want to make a, um, a, um, a point about what we're discussing here. We're not, when we say denial, I think we're not necessarily talking about a denial of the entire petition. Again, the context here is I'm filing a case and, but it might be for somebody who's out of status or got laid off or, you know, this is more than 60 days. And, they, and we're talking about what if uh, the H-1B petition could be approved, but they could say, here's your petition, but we're not giving you the, the status. We're not giving you the I-94 card. Congratulations. Here's your approval. You're unlawfully present now. And then, and then you got to deal with, you know, leaving to get a visa and come back. And pre-pandemic, that might have just been inconvenience of an international trip. But now the stakes are very high on that. So I think what we're, what we're saying is, like, of course we don't want a denial at all. But w- what we're making an assumption here is that we're filing a good petition, um, which are still subject to higher denial rates during this administration than historically than in the past. 
but um, the discretionary, the major discretionary component here may be that status portion. And so if USCI is going to deny my status portion, not exercise discretion, wouldn't it be nice if they, if they say no? I'd rather them say no seven months from now or six months from now because I can work in a period, like you said, in a period of authorized state during that time. And then, and then maybe seven months from now, I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but like you said, vaccine, better administration, uh, the pandemic, you know, uh, is, is, is staved off and, and, and now international travel is back to the pre-2020 inconvenience that it was instead of the crazy, you know, life-threatening situation that it can be now, you know? Correct. Correct. So there are multiple uh, nuances. So yes, one is the status issue. The other is just the ability to keep working because now if you get a denial after the I-94 is expired, in cases where you get the denial before the I-94 is expired, now the second time around the employer and employee will file a non-premium process regular case for extension. Right. Um, and, and you're right, if it's six or seven months, they keep talking about the vaccine being out by as early as December 11th of 2020 or even by spring for medical doctors and nurses, and then the rest of the world will hopefully get it by spring and summer. So then if you have to travel, you can actually make that trip. So let's move on to the next issue, the H-1B workers with the green card case. So, you know, what's, um, you, you know, what's the time limit in terms of how long can a person stay in the U.S. on H-1B status before any green card is filed or after the permit filed and before the I-140 approval. So you have multiple different options. So let's briefly touch upon that. Maybe, Kevin, can I come back to you to explain this particular issue? And then we'll have Corzad explain additional issues with respect to green card applications um, yeah, thanks, Sheila. for workers who are not. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you know, when, when onboarding, it's, it's a good idea to get an assessment of where uh, onboarding an H-1 worker, foreign national workers, uh, where they are in their green card journey, if they even have a green card case. If uh, there's no green card case initiated, the maximum limit for H-1B status is six years. So, you know, if you don't want to hire somebody who has uh, used five and a half years with no green card case, that's not going to be a very uh, uh, profitable use of, uh, of H-1B filing resources. So, um, if the individual worker has a green card case, the question is like, well, what stage are they in? Uh, generally speaking, if they have an I-140 approved with a previous employer and the priority date is not current, they're able to file an H-1B extension beyond the six-year limit uh, as long as they meet those two conditions. If the I-140 has been approved for more than 180 days, though, even if that original green card sponsor were to withdraw the I-140, they still have the ability to use that I-140 to be able to extend beyond the six-year limit, and that's part of those uh, uh, regulations, cores I've mentioned from um, the outgoing administration in January of uh, 2017. Um, the, the, the benefit of, of that is uh, if an individual has an I-140 approved for more than 180 days, even if the prior employer were to withdraw it, there's no real... Um, uh, as much of a sense of urgency to start a green card case for this individual because they have the ability to extend beyond the six-year limit anyway. So it's just something to be mindful of, of like if you want to initiate green card cases, prioritizing who, who needs them versus who, who can wait a little bit. Those individuals with no approved I-140 are in a more uh, uh, urgent bucket if, if you're trying to sustain their ability to work in H-1B status than those with the approved I-140s. Um, the other part is Maybe, uh, you know, as, as most of you know, the employment-based green card process is very much an employer-driven process. 
and um, the employer has basically all the leverage in the, in the green card journey until the employ the the person the uh, foreign national worker is able to file their 45 application and it's been pending 180 days or more. So if their 45 is filed and then the, it's been pending more than 180, uh, 180 days or more, now this individual can move on to a new company, uh, take their green card case with them without having to have the new company start up a whole new green card case to a new labor in an I-140. If you are onboarding somebody, this is great. If uh, you have uh, people uh, working on your team in this situation, it gives them flexibility to, to move on uh, with, with a little bit more leverage uh, than people who don't have the green card case advanced to that stage yet. So um, I think these are a couple of things to be mindful. It's uh, to know, you know where people are in the card journey to make sure that you can employ them for a sustainable period of time, how much you're able to extend their status, and how much overhead is going to go into doing a green card case for this person depending on where they are in the process. Uh, I was saying this is exactly why we're saying that, uh, you know, it depends on who you are and when you're filing. Uh, so for those employers who are uh, losing a valuable employee after 10 or 15 years, that, that is always disappointing, especially in the consulting company model more so, uh, but for every employer in any context. Uh, but for the employer or the company getting a valuable resource where all they need to do is establish and show by filing the supplement J that the new job job occupational classification is same or similar, meaning the job duties are same or similar so they can enjoy the AT21 adjustment of status portability benefits, that's always music to their ears. Uh, good point, good issue. So, Kurzad, if we move on to the issue from the employer's perspective, I know we've seen a lot of priority dates move very rapidly now in the past month or two, October and November. To some extent, a lot of downgrades, upgrades, all kinds of different scenarios that employers and employees are trying to finagle and negotiate. So what if the employee is no longer working with the employer? Uh, what are their responsibilities and obligations, and how can we make this a win-win for everybody? So... The question presented is, you know, to, to a lot of employers is, so this person was working with me for a long time. I, uh, as the employer, sponsored their permanent residence, uh, but then they departed, either for greener pastures or because their personal, uh, personal circumstances compelled them to do so. And they're potentially uh, following their own path with a different employer, but like you said, Sheila, Priority dates have uh, progressed rather rapidly, and they have a chance, and by they I mean the employee has a chance to grab that brass ring. Um, so, so can an employer who's no longer employing that foreign national uh, still uh, support the filing of an adjustment of status application with uh, a, um, a previous employee? The answer is yes, but you know certain conditions have to be met. And I think a good way to kind of look at this is to rehash and look at it from a standpoint of a fairly common situation. Um, so an H-1B worker who's been working for the same company for seven plus years, company, as I said, filed the labor in the I-140 years ago. Sometime after March 2020, they're laid off and they've managed to find another H-1B sponsor and attained an H-1B change of employer approval with that other employer. And now, 
October, November, fall of 2020, priority date for the green card case has become current, and the employees contacted that prior employer to see if they'd still be willing to sponsor the green card. Uh, among their responses, some employers have said that employees have needed to return to work for them first, and others have said that it's okay to file even if they didn't immediately return. Now, it's important to remember that an adjustment of status case is filed by an employee, the foreign national, based on a job offer um, that that employer is offering them. There is no requirement in the regulations or in the statute that a foreign national have been working for the employer that is sponsoring them for permanent immigration um, at, that, at the time of filing the adjustment or even prior to filing the adjustment uh, or even prior to filing the immigrant petition. There's just absolutely no requirement for that. It is, at the end of the day, a future job offer. However, practically speaking, you have to look at, sometimes you have to look at a green card application not only through the lens of the law, but also the lens of what's practical, what makes sense, what mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. is. And reality mm -hmm. is, is that if I'm, an, if I'm a USCIS officer, if there's a USCIS officer out there, and they're looking at a 20-page adjustment of status application form, which lists the last five years of um, residence history, employment history, status history. Uh, I'm looking at an individual's pay stubs, their finances nowadays, they're actually their financial makeup because of the new I-944 requirement. I'm going to be looking at the applicant and I'm going to be saying, okay, well, you know, is there really a bona fide job opportunity here? What is the intention of the sponsoring employer? What is the intention of the sponsoring employee? Um, so when an employee, a foreign national is not working for the employer that sponsored their permanent residence, uh, you know, yes, of course, you know, the counterpoint of this could be, well, you know, the foreign national, the, the sponsoring employer did sign a supplement J form uh, confirming the existence of a uh, job opportunity in line with the labor certification in I-140 that was filed by that employer on behalf of this foreign national. But, you know, as, 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 as many different snowflake shapes that there are in the universe, as many different fingerprint worlds there are in the universe, that's how many different USCIS officers there are in the universe. That's how many different opinions there are about, about whether a particular scenario could or could not be indicative of bona fide employment. So, you know, really have to be careful about how you approach um, the manner in which you want to in, in which you want to proceed with this green card application whether you're an employer or an employee for some employees it may it may make sense not to move forward for some employers it may make it may make sense just to kind of cut uh, ties you know at the end of the day adjustment of status is discretionary and actually within the last week or two we, uh, we've been seeing the USCIS as it kind of changes over uh, from one administration to another really pushing a lot of the um, more restrictive priorities that the um, that, that, that the, the current uh, administration might have a lot of changes to policy manuals that are uh, affecting uh, long-standing principles as to uh, what uh, what eligibility there would be for adjustment of status, naturalization, and things like that. Uh, now, will the incoming administration reverse these, change these, keep these? Nobody can really tell. One would hope that they would look at them closely and uh, do the revisions that are required to keep them in line with the law. But, you know, one can never tell. Uh, honestly, 
practically speaking, the clearest way forward, the one that has the least issues with respect to passing muster would be for the foreign national who's applying for adjustment of status to be employed by the sponsoring employer uh, either at or shortly after filing of the adjustment and definitely at the time of the interview unless, you know, like uh, uh, Kevin was talking about previously, portability is kicked in. But uh, facts matter. So these are things that, you know, are, are reasonable and should be evaluated pretty closely before, uh, before proceeding. Thank you, Korzad. And we agree. I think all of us are kind of waiting with bated, bated breath as to what could happen under the Biden administration. As we know that uh, uh, Joe Biden has said that he's going to reverse many of the restrictive policies imposed by the Trump administration. And irrespective of which political party you are or belong to or affiliated with or voted for, whether it was Trump or Biden, if you are interested in immigration, and immigration is one of your issues for your business or for your employees, et cetera, then clearly the, 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 the administration in the last three or four years, and I've been practicing for over 30 years, has been one of the roughest and toughest and most difficult, stressful times for employers and employees and families with immigration. Um, I know we also try to be mindful of the time, and we're coming pretty close to 35 minutes, and we try to wrap up everything between 40 and 45 minutes on the outside. So let's try to move quickly. Okay, so one of the questions is the H-1B extension for our existing H-1B employee was recently denied. What can I do? Why was it denied? What are they looking at, et cetera? So as most of us are aware, there are three main reasons. One is the right to control, the specialty occupation or lack of specialty occupation, and maintenance of status. So I'm going to briefly talk about the right to control, invite Korzad to talk about specialty occupation, and Kevin to round it out with the maintenance of status, and then try to conclude very quickly. So also, many uh, of Sheila, us are just, aware. Yeah. Uh, sorry, she, uh, just, uh, ba uh, basic point number one is if and you mentioned this earlier, but I just want to reiterate: um, if the I-94 card is still valid for someone whose petition was just denied refile, like you said, without premium processing so that they can continue to work in a period of authorized stay for either the 240 days or, you know, for as long as the petition is pending. Um, but we're talking about like, oh, but wait a minute, the I-94 card is, is, is expired and we got one of these denials. Um, normally we would just travel, but during the pandemic, what do we do? And I think that's the, the context, just to clarify. And so I've, with respect to the right to control issue, as we've seen, you know, pre- the IT Serve Alliance lawsuit, which they won in March of this year of 2020, uh, based on that and based on losing that, the USCIS issued a policy memo rescinding their prior policies on employer-employee relationship in June of 2020. And essentially, um, the memo provides that uh, the right to control evidence like client and vendor letters, contracts, uh, statements of work, purchase orders are not required under the regulations that the employer-employee relationship is defined by the employer's ability to either hire, fire, pay, or otherwise control the, the employee, unlike before where they were asking for an and, which actually violates their own regulations and the prior policy for decades. Um, so if the petition was denied prior to June 2020, then you can actually file 
a motion to reopen, reconsider a pilot, uh, an appeal of some kind and explain why you are filing it late, explain it and request the waiver because the USCIS changed their policy interpretations and their interpretation of terms and that because of the government's change in their own regulations and interpretations, the prior USCIS examiner or adjudicator who had denied the petition did not have the proper guidance from the leadership or use the prior old guidance, which has been changed by the USCIS. Um, and we found that to be very helpful. And at Multi Law Firm, we have won many such cases by filing it and arguing this and winning these cases. Um, uh, and, uh, just, and, and again, just, uh, remember, it's a preponderance of the evidence issue. So, Kevin, I'm going to let you jump to the specialty occupation. It looks like you want to add something else here. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think, of course, I was going to talk about that, but I just wanted to okay. mention we don't file those as motions or appeals. We, we refile them. Motion or appeal is going to take, like, the better part of a year to process. Unlawful presence doesn't stop. So, uh, you know, we're filing those cases, you know, most likely with premium processing because they're against that 180-day clock. So they'd like to get an outcome to know whether they have to deal with the logistics of travel or, or, or is it, you know, uh, this going to work. But that being said, we've had some cases work where we've done the refiling, uh, uh, not necessarily with the same employer. It might have been a transfer situation, but the prior denial was just on right to control because you didn't give us the letter or whatever. Um, and then one other point right. about this is that since June – um, I personally have filed like zero H-1B petitions with uh, uh, end client or vendor documentation, and I've gotten zero to control RFEs in, in response. So it does seem like USCIS is being very, um, uh, you know, compliant with, with this policy. Exactly. And to go back to the point, like if the I-94 card is still valid, then you just simply refile the petition without the premium processing so we can continue to work and stay here the entire time. Good point, right. and, and thank you for that explanation clarification. Kevin, let's jump to Corzad with specialty occupation and wrap it up with maintenance of status because we're past like 40 minutes. Uh, thanks, Sheila. Um, so if the denial was based on um, – if the denial of the petition was under specialty occupation and the I-94 card is expired, it would be pretty high risk to onboard that H-1B worker. Uh, there could still be a chance of getting an H-1B case approved with an I-94 card, but it would really depend on the reasons listed in the denial for why the USCIS uh, didn't find that uh, job to be a specialty occupation under the regulations. Um, federal lawsuit is oftentimes the end, uh, oftentimes a pretty uh, uh, common uh, next step in those types of cases because USCIS, AAO, they will um, hunker down with what they feel the interpretation is of the regulations, but the federal district court has uh, seen that differently along with uh, their review of other precedent and, admi and administrative law. Um, and that could help stop any unlawful presence and resolve the issue so that employment can restart again. Wonderful. Thank you, Korzad. And let's quickly wrap up the maintenance of status uh, issue. Uh, RFEs and how employers can try to respond to it in these kinds of situations. And obviously, if to the extent that employers aren't comfortable or don't have a good in-house legal team or lawyers that they're using, obviously, we at the Muslim law firm can certainly guide in the test, you know, consult, guide, help, pilot, etc. cetera. Uh, Kevin? Yeah, thanks, Sheila. So maintenance of status or status violation things, I think it comes up for um, uh, employers mostly for cap season when they're onboarding uh, or, or transitioning people working for them, maybe on CPT to H-1B. 
And this past uh, lottery season is not unlike several lottery seasons before where USCIS does crack down on or apply higher scrutiny to those who are working uh, on immediate participation CPT, particularly if it's from a school that's known to um, give that out uh, relatively easily. Since immediate participation CPT is the exception to the rule, not the, not the main rule, uh, the main rule is you have to be uh, uh, in the uh, one academic year into the program before you can use CT, CPT to kick in. So in there, if there's a situation where USCIS has already made a, uh, a finding that this person has violated status, it's a CPT thing, again, if there's not like a litigation option that's on the table, it's probably just that person to leave within 180 days of that decision because they're against the, uh, the three-year bar clock. And, you know, that's just going to uh, uh, exacerbate things even more uh, than the pandemic already has for that individual. So very limited options there. But maybe we're talking about somebody who's just got an RFE on maintenance of status. You know, maybe you got the RFE on maintenance of status because they're working on day one CPT and they're only asking about maintenance of status. And the RFE is due in January. But may, Oh, and I get a 60-day extra deadline uh, uh, extension because of the extra 60 days given to all things uh, filed since March. Um, and uh, what we're recommending to people is maybe just prepare the RFE response, you know, get all the CPT documentation, and then hold it and see what happens. Um, maybe, you know, uh, come February or March when the response is due, you know, may maybe other people are filing those cases and it's working and it's fine. Okay, we'll give it a shot. Um, or or uh, maybe the visa the consulates have reopened and visa processing is a little bit easier. Okay, well, maybe I'll give it a shot and give it to them. And if they say, sorry, you failed to maintain status, but they're otherwise approving the petition, you know, because they didn't ask about specialty occupational right to control, they're going to approve the petition. It's just whether to give the I-94 card. Well, I gave it my best shot and they said, no, I'll go get a visa and come back. But what if in a few months from now it's, it's worse than that? What if, uh, you know, uh, the consulates are shut down or are locked down even more uh, and there's no chance of, of traveling, well, you know, maybe I'm just going to withdraw the change of status request. So I ask USCIS to approve this petition for consular processing, continue working on my CPT so I can, you know, put, money, put food on the table because the USCIS, I'm no longer asking USCIS to scrutinize my CPT. And uh, if I get the H-1B petition approved, and, you know, hopefully this is still approved for like a three-year duration, that doesn't change, um, I'll, I'll leave and apply for the visa, you know, in 21 or 22 when I feel safe to do so and activate my, my H-1B time uh, at that point in the future. So just some things that, you know, things that were um, easy to strategize with pre-pandemic just require a little bit more thought processing because the stakes are a little bit higher. Um, for those with the CPT cases right now, uh, with like pending RFEs, I think it's like hurry up and wait is probably the best advice to give right now. Thank you, Kevin. As you can see, there are so many nuances and wrinkles to all of the H-1B-related petition approvals within the U.S., status changes, maintenance status issues, traveling abroad, getting stuck due to COVID-19, presidential proclamations, life. It's been a crazy tough uh, year overall for all of us. 2020 has been a challenging year. Um, and advice that conventionally that we've given, that we've referred to, just travel to Canada or Mexico, go back to India, pick up your visa, come back. What would have been fairly routine or not as complicated is overwhelming with consulate closures and uh, consular post closures and pro pro proclamations which make it impossible to get a visa stamp 
in the H1B or L1 categories, et cetera. Um, but obviously, as you can see from the discussion between Korzad, Mehta, Kevin Andrews, and myself, there are always nuances, exceptions, rules, and it proves and establishes the importance of working with a strong, knowledgeable team that can continue to guide you and help you. So on behalf, and, and, I, and I know, as I said, 2020 has been a tough year, and when we meet next, uh, well, since we're in early December and we meet next a month from now, it'll be early January, uh, really, really, you know, one hope that 2021 brings better news for all of us, uh, not just in the world of immigration, but in the world of immigration and the world of COVID-19 vaccine and good health and happiness for all of us. So on behalf of Korzat Mehta, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for participating in today's discussion. We hope you understand and appreciate the wealth of knowledge and information that we can continue to provide with our amazing, awesome, brilliant, caring, and dedicated team at the Muthi Law Firm. And we wish you, your family, and all your loved ones a very happy and safe holiday season. And we look forward to continuing to take good care of you in the new year. So stay safe, stay healthy, and have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.